Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding, whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Today I'm joined by Dr. Asha Lamy, also known as the Fat Doctor. Asha is a weight-inclusive, non-binary GP, advocating for weight-inclusive medicine and passionate about intuitive eating, haze and fat acceptance. Asha joins us today as part of Eating Disorder Awareness Week to discuss the role of a GP in eating disorder treatment and how we can work to abolish weight stigma, which is so heavily embedded into medicine, specifically eating disorders. Hello, Asha. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be part of um, Eating Disorders Awareness Week. Last year, I think I was just sort of starting with my campaigning and Mm -hmm. and it kind of passed by and I was like, next year, I'm totally doing something for this. So I'm really glad to have been invited. Thank you. Oh, amazing. No, I I remember I was speaking to Chucks. I think you might know Chucks. And I was asking him, like, oh, do you know any any doctors that might be interested? And then Chucks said that you were coming to the Eating Sod Awareness Talks that we were doing. And I was like, there is no better GP. Like, I have to speak to Asha. Um, So I'm so excited that we're doing this. And also, it's actually such an exciting week it's also full of beans first birthday um oh, and oh, I was oh. like thinking back and I was like wow I timed that so well for it to be eating disorders awareness week and then I was like no Hannah you planned it so that it was in eating disorders awareness week there was no like <laughs> fluke about that um so yeah this this episode is really exciting it's eating disorder awareness week it's our first birthday so it's a very good one to be having for the first birthday I'm just gonna say let me take this opportunity to wish you a happy birthday get that out there and then we carry on very important <laughs> yes absolutely absolutely I might even play happy birthday when I uh, put the podcast together I think that might have to happen but yeah I am really excited to talk to you I've had loads of interest from the listeners as well with questions for you at the end um so that'll be excellent to go through but I guess I wanted to start with if we're thinking about GPs in terms of the responsibility for a patient with their treatment what would you say is the responsibility of the GP in eating disorder treatment so I I think it depends on where you are doesn't it it depends on where you are in your journey I think first of all GPs are probably going to be the ones that are going to pick up on eating disorders or should be the ones to pick up on eating disorders so if you've never sort of openly admitted it or um, you're not even sure if you have an eating disorder then actually probably chances are you're going to go see your GP first but that's what most people do so recognition of eating disorders and um, and knowing the process by which you can refer somebody into the eating disorder service you know in your local area because it's different wherever you are um, obviously we work with multidisciplinary teams across the fields in all different areas of healthcare, whether it's pediatrics or you know um elderly care, geriatrics, I don't say that anymore, elderly care, whether it's a psychiatry, whether it's obstetrics, whether it's chronic health, like, so we're used to working in multidisciplinary teams. And actually, I think, I think you don't have a multidisciplinary team without a GP involved somehow, because mm-hmm. your GP is the person that is responsible ultimately for your health care. You, you know, of course, you'll have specialist intervention, but your GP is part of that team. So I would say that probably a GP is part of the entire process. 
And then, you know, if you're not part of eating disorder services, because of course not everybody who is has an eating disorder is part of the service, or maybe they've, you know, left the service, maybe they're, you know, at a different place in their recovery, you're still going to be going and seeing your GP all the time. And I think, you know, I keep saying this, especially around this time, recovering from an eating disorder in such a a stigmatized stigmatized world in a world that is so anti-fat and so you know stigmatizes people to do with their you know to do with their weight all the time I guess you know you could be going to see your GP about a sore thumb that has absolutely nothing to do with your eating disorder and they can trigger your eating disorder so I actually think probably the biggest impact that we have on people is probably when you come to see us about like you know regular stuff that has nothing to do with an eating disorder, but we somehow find a way to sort of trigger some very negative thoughts and feelings, which I think is one of the most important things to work on as, as, a, as a service as a whole. I hope that answered your question. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think ultimately, you know, the, the way that I see it, and I think is what you just explained, is that the GP is there to recognise maybe the signs initially or to be there if you go to them and say, I've recognised recognize these signs in myself what help can I have but then equally like throughout the treatment you know going for blood tests going for weight monitoring all of the stuff like that that's kind of how I see a GP would be involved but I think you're so right there what you've said in that kind of that responsibility as well of you know there are going to be other illnesses potentially along the way like um random things or you know maybe going for contraception or something like that and I have a distinct memory of of going to the doctor um about contraception and I was kind of like in between contraceptions thinking about different ones they said oh you know whilst you're here can we weigh you and I was like a few years into recovery uh, I was like yeah that's fine but um can I like turn my back to the scale and not know my weight um still on the scales and went "Mm," and then said the weight out loud and I was just like I literally categorically said "I'm, I'm in recovery currently and you know weight is something that I'm still working through So is there any sort of like training at the moment for that? Or, I mean, you're shaking your head, so I'm assuming no. Sorry, you can't, you can't, you can't do, that's the problem with podcasts, that you can't see me rolling my eyes and shaking (laughs) my head. But the thing is, it it, it shocks me to this day how little we know about eating disorders. And, you know, I will put my hands up and say that I had huge blind spots myself. When I started a year ago, kind of advocating and talking about weight stigma, medical weight stigma, it was actually the eating disorder community who came alongside and actually taught me so much so much stuff because it's so important isn't it like the things that doctors and nurses and allied healthcare professionals do that like that show a complete utter sort of ignorance forgive me you know I don't think there is any other word ignorance and sometimes beyond ignorance sometimes I think it sort of crosses a line into almost bullying it depends on who you are depends on who you're seeing but you know there is no need to weigh people in general in general, there's no need to weigh. Now, of course, if it's part of your eating disorders treatment and we've been told that we have to do regular weighings, that's fine. And, and of course, I would assume that for every person, the way that's dealt with would be sensitively and, you know, there'd be guidance around how it's going to be, when it's going to be, not haphazard whenever we want to. But aside from that, and aside from a few other, you know, important times when we do need to weigh you, um, I put this on my website, actually, on the No Way website. There are times when you do need to be weighed. 
but you don't need to know your weight. We need to know your weight. You don't need to know your weight at all, ever. There is never a situation where you need to know your weight. So, you know, this idea that you went into a GP, and I'm so glad that you were quite far along in your in your recovery and you were able to advocate for yourself even then it wasn't done properly but you know imagine how many people are out there that either have never disclosed that they have an eating disorder or it's never been picked up on or they're in a larger body so it's being ignored um or worse still they're in a larger body and their their doctor or nurse thinks they're doing them a favor by weighing them and telling them their weight you know so there's all types of different people in this you know for in in this situation in this scenario but you literally never have to tell a person their weight never there is never a reason to tell a person their weight except for if they ask to know it so i think that even if you are weighing people for contraception actually is one of the reasons why it might be necessary but just measure it you know, like why why would anyone say it out loud it's not necessary in fact it shouldn't be an opt out it should be an opt-in thing mm-hmm. like we should just automatically record the weight tell the person to look away record the weight go back to our computer and if they say oh can you tell me what it was say yeah sure it was but if they don't ask then you simply don't tell and that should just be standard practice there's no reason there's literally no reason why that is not standard practice. But I genuinely think it's 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 an ignorance uh, and, a, and, a, and a lack of understanding of eating disorders in general, like really in general. I think people, you know, I don't even think most doctors understand how the definition of, um, of eating disorders changed, you know, with the DSM-5. So I bet you if you did a poll of loads of GPs, you will find most of them don't even know what the criteria are, what is the what are the symptoms to look for, um, and certainly not sort of people who don't kind of fit into that kind of very niche, you know, perhaps anorexia or bulimia where things perhaps we know a little bit more. You can still have an, eat, an eating disorder and not fit into that specific um, category. And I think doctors would not even understand some of them might not even know that, if I'm honest. Some of them might not even know what goes beyond the things that we learned in medical school. And times changed and things have changed massively since then. So I'm, you know, I'm sorry that happened to you. I'm not surprised. And this is one of the reasons why I am so determined to get this campaign no way off the ground. Because the the the, the basic premise of it is to stop weighing people, um, you know, stop advocating weight loss, stop stigmatizing people, stop referring them, you know, for weight loss surgery when they've got, a, you know, a diagnosis of binge eating disorder. What are you thinking? Why would you possibly think that was a good idea? And yet it's common practice, if not normal standard practice. So I think, you know, these things are all really important and I'm glad you're talking about them. Yeah. It's interesting. I was just thinking as you were talking then, you know, when you go to the doctor, because I was thinking in my head, like trying to think, why is it that we get told our weight so much? And I was thinking about, you know, other measurements that you might have, for instance, like your blood pressure. And I mean, I was a biomed student, so I guess I might understand the blood pressure, you know, the what it means more than an average person, but they wouldn't, they don't tell you your blood pressure. So they don't tell you your potassium level, do they? They don't no. go, oh, your potassium was 5.6. I mean, they wouldn't dream of it. They'd just be like, your kidney function is fine. And, you know, so with your, you know, if you're, if you're measuring weight for contraception, if that's the reason that you're measuring weight, you measure the weight and then you determine what contraception is suitable for the patient. You mm-hmm. don't bring the weight into it. You simply say, so this is what's available to you. 
you don't even have to mention the weight. Like it's not relevant. Like in the same way that if I'm prescribing you medication, I need to know your kidney function for the vast majority of medical medicines that I prescribe. So I'm not going to sit there and say to you, well, I've had a look and your, your creatinine was 103. And so I mean, you, you're not interested in that <laughs> and, need, and, and nor should you be. So all you need to know is that I've checked it and I've made sure it's safe. I don't have to discuss it with you. That's just, you know, that's what I do. It's part of my job. So I agree with you. Why? Why do we need to tell people weight? And I, and I think it's because we're so weight focused. We are so, so obsessed with weight in the medical field. It's, it's become ridiculous what we're weighing people for. And this idea that, you know, every time you go and see a doctor, if you go to the hospital, you must be weighed. Why? Just why? That's ridiculous. If you're worried about people losing weight, then you should weigh them. Because if they are, you know, if you're worried about cancer, like you need you need to measure people's weights. Understandable. But again, like you don't have to tell them, just measure it. And if they've lost weight, you might say, hey, I've just noticed that you've been losing weight. Is there a reason why that's happened? But you don't have to talk to them about it otherwise. You know, if it's stable, like just leave it alone. Yeah, yeah so... Yeah, I think it is really interesting. I think you are right in, in in the fact that it is because as a society, we're so weight focused that that's why we, I think, put so much, I don't know, it's kind of held on a pedestal as the, the marker of health. Um, and it's just so far from the truth. Yeah. And I think especially, I mean, with, with, with anybody, but especially if, I don't know, I just can't imagine looking at someone's notes seeing eating disorder and then still discussing it or if somebody came into a clinic with you know potentially concerns about an eating disorder just instantly going to the weight as well I think it's it just does show such a lack of awareness mm. but I think I I struggle with how things are going to change because it feels so fixed I mean you know and everyone's great work hopefully that will change things but I always you know I have conversations with people in the eating sort of community I'm like yes we're getting somewhere it's brilliant and then you yeah. go to somebody you know in the street and I had quite a eye-opening experience I did a bit of research into um binge eating disorder and the treatments that you know are available and stuff and I spoke to some GPs and they said that they had somebody in their surgery that was kind of like the the specialist eating disorder GP so so they were the one that if somebody thought that a, a patient had an eating disorder they'd refer them on to them and I asked them what they knew about binge eating disorder and they didn't know anything. Mm. And, and most, most GP surgeries do not have a specialist in eating disorders. Yeah. They, mu they might have someone who specialises in psychiatry because they've done some psychiatry, mm -hmm. uh, basic psychiatry, because let's face it, I mean, it, sure, there might be someone that was an eating disorder specialist for 10 years and then became a GP. That could happen, but those are, you know, there are not very many of those mm -hmm. so the vast majority of surgeries won't have a specialist in eating disorders and even if they do that specialist is not going to be a real specialist and I don't I don't think most doctors know what binge eating disorder is. I don't even think they can define it I don't think they know that actually it's the most common eating disorder I don't think they know how it presents I don't think that they know how harmful it is and that's the other thing you know I hate using the word atypical anorexia because it just sounds like anorexia with a good you know a dollop of weight stigma added into it you know you don't need to put the atypical bit in there um but <laughs> nevertheless looking at the studies to show sort of the physical health consequences and the outcomes um 
you know, I, I don't I think doctors understand that that the it's the it's the eating disorder that can seriously damage your health. It doesn't matter what your starting weight was. And that that's always really upsetting to hear my colleagues be so ignorant of the fact that eating disorders prevent present in a in, in a number of different ways. And you just have to be very aware of the subtle ways that they can present and that there will be certain you might hear from a patient and you might think, oh yeah, that's that's odd. Let's let's pick at that because that's how a GP consultation goes. You know, we're always looking for underlying mental health. Um, you know, we're always thinking like, is there is there a red flag in this consultation mm. that I'm missing? What am I missing? What have I not got here? Why is this person really here? And sometimes if someone's got a sore throat, it's really obvious, but sometimes there's more. And it's our job to try and get to the bottom of that. So we should be asking probing questions. I think the problem is when it comes to eating disorders, a lot of the things, a lot of the sort of symptoms, I guess, or the presentations, the little things, the little clues that we should be looking for are things that we actually think are fantastic. So we think weighing yourself regularly is a really good thing. And we think intentionally losing weight, you know, by sort of dropping your calories to 800 calories a day. Well, actually, we think that's good. We prescribe that to people all the time. So when someone says that to us, we don't pick up on the fact that actually this could be really something quite serious. We're too busy applauding them for the vast majority of people, unless they're presenting in a way where we think, OK, well, this person is um, is too, is, is you know, well, we're essentially focusing on their BMI. This person's BMI is at a level where actually now I'm going to be concerned. Well, that's terrible because you're missing out the vast majority of people who are presenting with eating disorders and are telling you things that you should be thinking, um, this doesn't sound right. But instead you're thinking, oh, well done. Or, you know, oh, that's perfectly normal. Why wouldn't you um, do this or do that or do this or do that? And that's that's the problem, isn't it? You know, if somebody sort of started talking about, I don't know, feeling really lonely and isolated and, you know, said something like well I don't, I don't think anyone would notice if I'm if I'm if I died tomorrow if someone said something like that I would instantly think hang on are you planning on dying tomorrow where's this coming from are you feeling depressed are you feeling suicidal like my job is to pick up on that tiny little cue and go with it but if somebody said something to me that is sort of you know, perhaps suggestive of an underlying eating disorder I may well if I am if I sort of um really don't like fatness and, and and don't like the idea of patients being fat so I actually really like my patients to be doing whatever they can to become thin I might completely miss that clue because I'm so focused on the importance of weight loss that I've just completely missed the fact that someone's essentially crying out for help they might have come in for a, like I said a sore thumb but they're actually there to tell me that something else is going on and I've completely missed it and I bet you there will be people listening today that will say you know what that happens to me I went to see my doctor and I sort of hinted at it because it was really hard to say, I think I have an eating disorder. And I sort of hinted and they just blocked me off and congratulated me. And then I didn't know what to do with myself. So I walked away. Mm. Um, real problems. Yeah, I, I think you have knocked the nail on the head completely in that, you know, I mean, I guess if we're thinking about anorexia or atypical anorexia or whatever, the, the behaviours that people engage in are the ones that in society you get a round of applause for. And, you know, I know so many people that have been, you know, not necessarily just by GPs, but by general members of the public, you know, you look so good now and everything like that. And it's as a whole society that we're fixated with, yeah. with the weight loss. Mm. Um, so I, I guess 
my kind of question and I don't know if this is what somebody might say as a GP because I'm not a GP myself but my sort of I guess the way that I see a GP is that they know a lot about everything so do you think there's an excuse there of oh well we have to know so much about everything you know how could we possibly know the ins and outs of an eating disorder or is that is that rubbish (laughs) we have a curriculum that we have, I mean, it's, it's just out there, Royal College of General Practitioners, this curriculum is documented in, uh, of what we are supposed to know. And eating disorders is in it. Like, well, I mean, you can't just use that. So it's, oh, there's just so much going on. I'm so fixated on blood pressure. I forgot about eating disorders. Mm. No, eating disorders are, as you're well aware, um, have really high mortality rates associated with them. If anything, we should be really clued up on these things. I think that, look, we are all massively overwhelmed. And in the last two years, we have spent our lives basically trying to keep up and focusing on this virus that, you know, appeared out of nowhere and we didn't know anything about. And so we haven't had time to upskill ourselves. But I don't think you have to be an expert in eating disorders to be able to manage people with eating disorders. Like I said, you know, a lot of it is with multidisciplinary teams. So you you don't have to know how to treat patients it's the same with HIV I'm not a specialist in HIV I I know that if I have a patient with HIV they're going to go to a specialist who's going to prescribe all of their medications etc etc but I also know when to test for HIV like it's not my it's not my you know I I know how to do it I know when to do I know when to look for it I know when to think oh could this be HIV related and should I test for it it's the same with every condition we need to know a little bit about everything and I think the reason that we are so clueless when we come when it comes to eating disorders, again, is because of weight stigma. It's because we don't, you know, we don't, I just don't think we're interested. I don't think we care enough. There was a, you know, I'm sure you were aware of the um, report that came out in April last year by the Women's Inequalities Committee about body image. Um, I'm sure you've read it and I'm sure you've talked about it. I thought it was really quite sort of forward thinking for its time. I didn't think it was enough, but I thought it was a lot better than we've had so far. It's just been completely ignored, not just by um, the government, because that doesn't surprise me. I don't expect my government to be able to do anything correctly at the moment. So that's by the by. But the medical community just ignored it. (laughs) Why would you ignore something that's so important? Why would you suddenly, even if you just got the vague gist of it, that, oh, actually body image is important, and weighing people can be quite triggering and focusing on calories is probably not a good idea. And I've heard some horror stories of things that GPs have said. I mean, vile things that I, I as far as I'm concerned, are massively abusive and should be reported to the highest level because you can't get away with saying that to patients. But they do. So, you know, I think that if you're asking why don't GPs know, the answer is not because they're too busy. Um Realistically, they're overwhelmed, but it's probably because they're not trained enough in it. But beyond that, it's probably because of the world that we live in. So you've got to remember that doctors live in the world like everybody else. And if they're watching the telly and they see loads of information about eating disorders all of a sudden, they might they might pick up on that more than they will because they read a textbook or they read an article in a journal. So the more we talk about eating disorders and eating disorders awareness, and the more we talk about 
um, the more unusual presentations, the more we talk about how things have progressed, how treatment has progressed, and the more we talk about how challenging it is to recover into such a fat phobic world. The more this is talked about, the more GPs will become aware of it because it's kind of buzzing around them. And I think the more they'll pay attention. Um, they can't use ignorance as, uh, to being too busy as an excuse, though. That's, um, mm. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, as we discussed at the start, there's a responsibility. So, you know, that should be upheld. But I do think, I think you're right about, um, you know, having more conversations and talking about it more, because I think currently the only time that eating disorders are almost put into the realm of the general populace rather than just those who have an interest and are listening which obviously fantastic but often you know when we're having these conversations it will be people that are already passionate about the awareness often when we it kind of gets to the media it's the worst case scenario it's it's somebody that um you know has your stereotypical eating disorder which is obviously absolutely horrific but it tends to be anorexia it tends to be a really low bmi it tends to be a female they're the ones that make it to the media because it's the shock factor and it's almost like mm. how do we how do we share so many stories of people that are you know the different to what we might stereotypically think is an eating disorder but it's not got that shock factor or that kind of oh my god that makes it to the media and it's it's almost how do we share the norm or the not norm as they see it when that's it's not like horrifically shocking yeah and we do we want um we want we want tantalizing media don't we nobody's really interested in media whether it be social media or whether it be television whatever that sort of (laughs) talks about real life experiences maybe maybe the general public is crying out for that actually but um the people who sort of commission these things the bosses the executives the whoever 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 are not interested in sort of listening to um a range of people they're far more interested in showing somebody that sort of that they can I wouldn't say fetishize but what is the word I'm looking for that they sort of make a spectacle out of and I've mm-hmm. been approached by a few um media companies in the past who've asked me whether I'd get involved in this project or that project and my first response has been look if you are going to sort of sort of make it a tantalizing make it sort of a spectacle if you're going to make fatness a spectacle I'm not interested if you're interested in sharing real life real true stories you know and doing it with integrity then I'll be on board and I think the problem is with showing that extreme we are actually talking about a very small percentage of people with eating disorders right like the vast majority of people don't present this way or certainly don't end up this way and and yet the studies have shown us that you don't have to get to this extreme to have such a negative impact on your health. We're far, it's far more important to talk about the people who you, you're probably going to miss, you know, and that actually, you know, at the moment, for example, I'm, I'm looking at a lot of um, social media and, and, and what I'm seeing, I'm seeing certain things that are, that are constantly popping up in my social media feed that I'm thinking it's really unhealthy and must be super triggering for anybody with an eating disorder. But these things are still lauded as kind of, you know, the epitome of health, like, you know, spending so many hours at a gym or, or eating this way or not eating this way. You know, it's we still think that's a good thing. And how can we possibly 
you know, go from that, which is our current reality, to actually saying, do you know what, some of these people, not all of them, so these people probably have an eating disorder and um, are promoting eating disorder behaviour or disordered eating, certainly, and in some cases, you know, classic features of eating disorders. And this is not something that we should be seeing in, in algorithms, and this is not something that should be popping up into social media feeds. You know, even if we are able to exclude the most kind of obvious stuff we've still got a lot of that kind of underlying stuff that we you know that we as a society that that is triggering and so I actually think there has to be a huge shift in society it has to be this massive change it has to be dramatic I think mm-hmm. um I was talking with someone you know who sort of asked me once what I what I thought the solution was and I I have said this on multiple occasions you know when asked like what is the solution I always say look if you've got a building that is subsiding and is collapsing because the foundations are not solid enough to hold it up. If that's where you're at, your foundations are so rotten, they are so broken, they're crumbling themselves that this building is not staying up. Like you can plaster over the cracks all you like. That building is coming down one way or another. So what's the solution? We all know what the solution is. The solution is to level the building, dig out the foundations and start again. And that is the solution for all of the problems we're seeing, um, not just with, with eating disorders, but actually with weight stigma in general, because it's impacting so many areas of the medical community. We literally have to demolish it and start again. Um, um, and practically, I'm not suggesting that we need to get rid of the NHS or anything. D- don't get me wrong, but um, we have to be drastic in our action. We can't just do a, like a one hour teaching on eating disorders and assume that somehow doctors are all going to be good because they're not. It starts at the very beginning. It starts with tackling society. It starts with tackling um, stigma. It starts by assessing stigma. It also starts by talking to doctors, trainee doctors, trainee nurses about social justice. How can we be in the professions that we're in and never once have a conversation in medical school or whatever school you went to to train about social justice? Like, what what are we thinking? We need to we need to start again. Um, so yeah, I'm supposed slightly anarchistic in that way. I'm an anarchist. I want I want to don't want to burn the world down. But you know, there has to be there. Ha- I mean, there has to be. We have to do it in a sensible way. We don't want to destroy people's lives. But you know, there needs to be something quite drastic that happens here. I don't think. Um, I don't think plastering over it is going to make much of a difference. No, I think you're completely right. I think what's happened now is we've just sort of this new health and wellness stream has come through. And like you say, the the disordered behaviours in terms of food and exercise and stuff, they are just normalised, which I think that does make... um, I think that tied together with the sort of, dramatization or kind of going to the extreme in the media it makes anybody with an experience of an eating disorder question do I actually have a problem because it's all around you um and I think it makes recovery equally as difficult because you know I I had the experience myself and so many of the behaviors I had that were crippling my life people were engaging in around me but they were also able to step away from them when they wanted Mm -hmm. to whereas I Mm -hmm. couldn't step away from them but then to have to remove those behaviors from my lifestyle was incredibly difficult because everybody else was allowed to carry on right absolutely it's like it's like alcoholism you know we we all probably Mm -hmm. drink a bit too much nowadays um in terms of what's you know healthy like g- going to the pub and you know having a 
so many pints or you know drinking this x amount of wine has become normalized for a lot of people it's probably too much but for the vast majority of us we might engage in that from time to time maybe too often but we can step away there are some people that simply can't like it becomes something that they cannot cannot stop doing and that's you know the reason for that is very complicated and involves uh, genetics neuroscience neurobiology neurochemistry it involves um you know childhood trauma and understanding why you work the way you do I mean this it's so complex and so nuanced there's no like this is why you become an alcoholic you know of course not and even the word alcoholic is so old-fashioned nobody uses that term anymore but do you know what I mean mm-hmm. this is what but society will kind of just go oh you know but those you know that you know that they, they come to a point of like it affecting their lives and then they're either sort of a spectacle or they're looked down upon um, and they're ostracized and they're marginalized whereas actually everybody's engaging in the same behavior to begin with which is just drinking perhaps more than they should be drinking or just drinking in general and then of course if you do go into recovery if you finally say you know I'm going to kick the habit and you manage to which is so hard because it's an addiction you manage to challenge that neurochemistry and that neurobiology you know you manage to stand up to your genetics and deal with your trauma then you have to go back into a recover into a world where alcohol is still you know part of everyday life you know how do you do that and I imagine with eating disorders it's even harder because you, you cannot drink but you have to eat so now you're having to eat in a way that isn't disordered and I, that must be so hard but I, I said to everybody I know with eating sort of recovering into the world we live in this fat phobic society that is really sort of so obsessed with dieting and you know weight cycling and pl- applauding weight loss and you know open any magazine you know look how much better so and so looks and you know all of this stuff if this is the world you're trying to recover into how on earth are you expected to do that like how do you like either you remove yourself from society or you try and find a way to integrate into society but that sounds impossible to me and I applaud anyone that's even trying like even if you're struggling and you're having more bad days than good the fact that you're even trying to recover into such a disordered world speaks volumes about your integrity and your resilience and your you know and your you know I don't know strength so hats off to you I, I've has, you know I've had issues with food a lot I've had all all of the sort of reasons to, to develop an eating disorder like you know a lot of the kind of like what are the risk factors like you know I could tick many of those boxes but it never happened to me I, I don't have an eating disorder and I don't know why I was lucky not to develop one either I don't know what it was about me that didn't and other people who I know were exactly the same did but um, you know, I I can't imagine how challenging it is to try and to recover from into into this world that we live in. I, I I don't know how you do it. I think it's amazing, and I really salute you because it's um it's hard. And you know, you made me think of my friend. I don't know if you follow William Hornby on Instagram. Do you follow William? I recommend him. He's lovely. Um, talks a lot about, obviously he talks about it as a man, which is fantastic. Because I think mm. that unfortunately the space is predominantly female. And I think that men's voices need to be. And he often will do videos that basically say, like if you're wondering whether you have an eating disorder, you probably have an eating disorder. Like if, if you're questioning it, if you're asking yourself, do I or don't I, chances are you probably do. And I think that is actually right you know like if, if you're constantly thinking that you might have one or you'll that sort of you'll read something and you think oh that might be me chances are it is you you're not making that up nobody makes up 
an eating disorder but it can feel I think very much like but so and so is doing it and so and so is doing it so like is there anything wrong with what I'm doing wrong is bad word but you know is what's the difference Mm. yeah definitely I, I really liked um kind of the analogy made to uh you know recovering from alcoholism because I think it's quite similar I I can imagine you know if you're in recovery from an eating disorder in a quote-unquote healthy BMI or if you're in a larger body I think that that would be quite similar because maybe I don't know I would see that when you were talking about um recovering from being an alcoholic and then you have to go back into the world where you know regular drinking is completely normalized people then question why aren't you having a drink or oh why don't you drink like you know I don't need to explain (coughs) why I don't drink I don't drink but it's it's questioned because it's not normal and I think in recovery from an eating disorder it would be quite similar if you know I I spoke about this on another podcast but recovery in a a body with a a low BMI is almost encouraged because you're at a low BMI and people want to help get back you back up to a BMI so eating is encouraged but if you're in a body that's deemed by society already big enough or or too big Mm -hmm. then you know recovery is so challenging because every bite that you take people are going to think well, you yeah. don't need that. You're meant to be in recovery from an eating disorder. But the, the treatment for every eating disorder is the same. It's regular eating. But that's yeah. not understood either. So there's so yeah. much a, so much of a lack of awareness that then there's all those stigmas on top that you're trying to get away from an eating disorder, but there's still stigmas there. And then to top it off, the NHS is recommending disordered eating. I mean, like, they are literally prescribing it. This... Um, you know, I don't want to get into it too much, but they call it the Newcastle diet. There's lots of soups and shakes and stuff that are out there that, you know, we're, we're being told to prescribe this nonsense. I absolutely plum refuse to prescribe disordered eating to a patient. Like I will not tell them to go, I don't care what size their body is. I'm not telling them to go and drastically reduce their calorie intake because, you know, that whether or not they develop an eating disorder as a result is 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 by the by it certainly increases their risk mm-hmm. and it's also and, and what's worse is you're saying this is healthy it's not healthy it's never healthy and it doesn't matter what size your body is like you said regular eating and you know nourishing your body but also doing more than that and you know i'm not an expert but certainly sort of looking after your mental and emotional and your social well-being um taking enough rest giving yourself a break, not putting too much pressure on yourself. All of these things are important for everybody in the world. And they do way more. They benefit you way more than losing weight. Like there's just no question about it. If you really want to do something to improve your health, if you wanted to pick one thing, I would say probably pick getting enough sleep and resting. But if you had to pick several things, you know, and you wanted to say, get some fresh air every day it's fine but you don't have to go to the gym like you could just go for a walk for half an hour a day will do you plenty and you know when it comes to eating eating regular meals trying to have as balanced a diet as possible beautiful but watching what you eat monitoring what you eat recording what you eat um measuring what you eat this is all very damaging as far as i'm concerned this is not healthy this is not promoting health so like you said i think when you're in a smaller body this kind of you know constantly watching what you're eating and measuring it and recording it and writing it down might be considered i'm not an expert again but might be considered unhealthy behavior but when you're in a larger body larger body this is considered 
the treatment for your body. And now it's take this drug. And, you know, in order to take this drug, this, this weight loss drug, you have to be on it for life. Otherwise you will regain the weight straight away. So basically take this drug that you'll be dependent on for the rest of your life so that you're not fat or have weight loss surgery, literally mutilate your body and constrict your stomach so much that you're no longer able to eat normal portions or, you know, normal is a funny word, but yeah, surely normal portions. This is recommended. This is recommended to people with binge eating disorder. And it is very, very, very clear from the data that A, people with binge eating disorder will, will are far less likely to have success from weight loss surgery, but also that it will make their binge eating disorder worse or mm-hmm. any eating disorder worse. And yet, if you, like you say, if you're in a smaller body, we're not going to recommend that. But if you're in a large body, we will tell you, hey, have you considered, have you considered weight loss surgery? And that might be that opportunity, that moment in the GP where maybe they don't know that you have BJ. They didn't look at your notes because quite often we're rushing. We don't look through your notes. We don't know you. We don't know you well enough. Or maybe it's not documented in your notes or maybe you've never had the courage to speak to anybody about it. Or maybe you are speaking to someone privately because your GP hasn't been able to help you. Whatever it is, you walk into the GP surgery, they take one look at you and say, I'm going to prescribe a weight loss surgery to you. Like that is that that is a traumatic experience. That that could send you spiraling for days, week, that could send you spiraling back into your eating disorder, that could set your recovery back six months, one year, who knows? Just because one completely clueless doctor or nurse or whatever just said something completely stupid, but they're being financially incentivized to say it now. So like they they have like they they feel like it, they're obligated to recommend it is that bad so it's such a I mean it's such a messed up world that we're living in like I said like when I said we needed to sort of level it to the ground I wasn't I wasn't just sort of trying to be dramatic here I was being serious how do you you know like how do we even begin to fix that nonsense but take it from a doctor who has done a lot of research into this you know there's very few things that you can do to control your health. The vast majority of your health is beyond your control. Um, it has basically to do with the country you were born into, the area that you live. It has to do with your parents, your parents' level of education. It has to do with how many billionaires there are controlling the world that you live in. It has to do with the fact that gas prices are going up and mobile phone prices are going up. That's what's going to predominantly control your health, right? That the sort of external sort of social determinants of health. The, the stuff you have control over, Probably if you really want to get into it, like reducing stress is probably the best thing that you could possibly do. And if you want to go behind beyond that, then possibly nutrition and exercise, but only if it's going to be healthy. If it's if it's actually going to harm you more than it is going to benefit your health, just forget about it. Like if, if getting on, you know, going for a walk is benefiting you, like, because it does, for sure. There's lots of positive benefits. But if for you as an individual, the risks of going for a walk because you you know you have a history of exercise addiction or that was part of your eating disorder your you know a complex relationship with exercise don't go for a walk like it's fine nothing will happen to you it is going to have such a minuscule impact on your health it, it doesn't it doesn't matter at all but going back into you know but, but not recovering from an eating disorder or or sliding back into an eating disorder because you've had this really traumatic experience that will have an impact on your health so you know i think that you know you need to make it really clear and i have designed um cards that you can take into your gp surgery with you at any point in time and literally show it to your doctor or nurse and just be like literally don't weigh me don't weigh me i don't give you my consent and you can withdraw your consent 
for weighing at any point in time, as long as you are competent. So sometimes that does impact certain people with an eating disorder if they have been deemed incompetent. That means they've been sectioned under the Mental Health Act. But as long as you are competent, you can withdraw your consent from anything, anything. And being weighed is one of those things. Even if it's necessary, you can still say, no, don't want it. You know, like in the same way that if you're a Jehovah's Witness and you walk, you come into a hospital and you're bleeding out, we say you need a blood transfusion. You say, no, it's against my religious beliefs. I will not take a blood transfusion. I can't do anything about that. That's your decision. So, you know, we have autonomy over our bodies. You never have to be weighed. You never have to be pressured into being weighed. And you can literally just say no. And I have heard from a few people that these cards are now being shown to doctors and the doctors are really angry about it, really peed off. And they're all writing about it in their little WhatsApp groups. And I have to say, I'm thrilled. I am delighted to hear this because I was, that's what I was hoping for. That's what I was aiming for. I want to um, annoy as many doctors as I possibly can because they can't get away with this any longer they just simply can't it's not it's not ethical it's not legal it's not anything so we have to challenge them so if you as an individual want to challenge your doctor the easiest thing you can say is nope don't weigh me done don't even have this conversation just you know a hand up literally in front of you saying no very clearly think of consent to be weighed exactly as you can say consider consent to have sex it should be exactly the same right like consent is consent is consent no matter what it is so in the same way that you would say no i don't want to have a sexual encounter with you you can also say no i don't want to be weighed and that should be the end of that end of discussion anyone that is trying to go against you is like somebody who's trying to essentially coerce somebody into a sexual encounter that they don't want right and we all know what that is we all know what that's called so the mm-hmm. same applies for your healthcare professional and don't forget it and if they are persisting you can literally get up and walk out and if you're having trouble you can always try and get in touch with me because I'm here to advocate for you um, if your doctor is really misbehaving um, they shouldn't but if they are let me know mm-hmm. it's honestly such a breath of fresh air hearing you speak and I just hope that there are other GPs listening who are equally as interested and as passionate and wanting to kind of get involved with you because especially when you were talking about exercise addiction you know that's something that I have struggled with still struggle with but nobody gets it because exercise is good for you and that is all that matters exercise no matter what is good for you and the fact that you can do all the exercise you can do is so great and you've got so much self-control and you're so uh, such strong willpower and it's utter rubbish but I have only ever spoken about it in a therapeutic setting because I would never go to my GP to say I have an issue with exercise because I, I I I know what the response would be so it's sad it really really is but it's so positive to hear you speak about it and to understand it and to get it thank you I would remind everybody that um the other thing we have to remember is when you when you see an epidemiological study if you have a study that shows that exercise is quote unquote good for you first of all that's a rubbish study because what does good for you mean but <laughs> let's just say that they you found that you know exercise reduces the risk of cardiovascular disease which you know there are studies that show this no question but that's an epidemiological study that is talking about the entire population 
The individual sitting in front of you is not a statistic. They're a person. They're a human being. There may be many reasons why they can't exercise. They may have chronic fatigue syndrome. They may have been chronic pain. They may be working three jobs a day and just not have time. They may have a history of exercise addiction. All of these things are important to factor in to the individual care you should be providing to patients. So sure, it will reduce your risk of heart disease. Say it reduces your risk of heart disease by 5%. I don't know. I don't know what the statistics are, but say by 5%. But if you have a history of uh, exercise addiction, which was part of your eating disorder, well, we all know that that's a massive risk. It's like trying to get somebody to exercise and tell them it's good for their health. Yeah, but it's also very bad for some people's health. So you have to just ask yourself as an individual, what are the benefits and what are the risks? And which one, like it's a pros and cons list, ultimately, for me as an individual. So the benefits might be, it may slightly reduce your risk of heart disease, but of course, it doesn't reduce it that much. It's a really small percentage. The vast majority of people, like the, the most important thing, the most important risk for heart disease is age. And second is being male. Like those are the big risk factors. Like you're more likely to get heart disease as you get older. So this exercise thing, yeah, sure. If there's no, if there's no risks, then great. But if there are risks and if weight stigma is a risk, that's what we have to remember. Weight stigma is a risk. It is bad for our health. So if we're being shamed into exercising, mm. that's that is a risk. That is not a benefit. So you should be exercising if you want to, because it makes you feel good. But if you don't want to, because it doesn't make you feel good or if it actually might make you feel bad, then don't do it there's plenty of other things you can do like I said get enough sleep you know that that's usually fairly easy to work on unless you have narcolepsy so work on reducing your stress forget the exercise who cares it's not a big deal it's not the end of the world but none of my colleagues talk about this even though they should because they should know that you cannot interpret epidemiological I hate that word epidemiological studies you can't use those to give individual care. They can inform your individualized care, mm. but they cannot, they cannot be the only thing you think about when giving individualized care. So I'm sorry that my colleagues aren't getting it, but you are right. You know, you are in the right. And if you think to yourself, well, maybe I should be listening to the GP. No, you know your body best. If exercising is going to cause more time than good, don't exercise. End of discussion. <laughs> absolutely yeah and I think you I mean this is what I have been rattling on about on this podcast for for a year now um but it's you know like you said use the data to inform your practice but when it comes to the individual's care you have to take that individual on an individual basis and I was talking about this a few weeks ago um with with a guy called Adam and he has a stoma so his his treatment for his eating disorder he has to use laxatives normally in eating disorder treatment you would get rid of those laxatives as soon as possible but he needs that and and you know doctors struggle to understand that because they see laxatives and think bad whereas you know there's so many different situations where people will have different illnesses or different condition, conditions alongside that you have to take into account and it might mean that the standardized treatment for somebody won't work and they might not even have another condition the standardized the standardized treatment might just not work so yeah. medicine 101 baby like if you haven't got <laughs> that like what how'd you graduate like that's that was yeah. that was the first thing they taught us and by the way adam um i love him 
Yeah. I do love him. Yes. <laughs> and he knows I love him because I tell him on a Good. regular basis. He's an absolute <laughs> angel. And he's actually, when I said I've learned a lot from like Adam's one of the people I've learned a lot of mm-hmm. stuff from. He is such a um a gem. So if he's listening in right now, I love you, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hope he is. That would be brilliant for him to hear. Um thank you so much that was incredible and I I really hope that we touched on so many different things um and really give people some food for thought I do have some questions from the listeners what you've been wanting to ask so the first question is from your perspective what does ideal early intervention for eating disorders look like oh juicy question um well it's I mean, first of all, it's got to be early recognition, right? Um, And we have to be prying a little bit, I think. And, you know, when I say prying, I don't mean like poking, but as I said, GPs should be picking up on cues and clues within the history. And there are probably certain groups of people that we should be looking out for specifically, certain groups of individuals who may be at higher risk. So I would be looking for you know, with my very basic knowledge, I would say probably adolescents um, looking for um, disordered eating patterns in adolescents. And of course, all the studies show that, you know, weight talk, diet talk, et cetera, et cetera, in adolescents massively predisposes to an eating disorder. And, And I wouldn't look at the body because it can go one of two ways, right? Like you can lose weight, but you can also gain a lot of weight during that period of time. And I would be equally as interested to find out if things were okay and maybe ask a few questions subtly you know you don't you don't want to be like hey do you have an eating disorder that's totally inappropriate but you know you can ask some questions and get some clues and maybe explore those issues with your patients you're probably going to be doing that over several appointments not just one um of course early intervention really is prevention um and prevention is uh, quite frankly the obvious thing is stop uh, weighing children and stop talking about diets at all and and talking about disordered eating stuff in school diet talk weight talk all of that stuff in school massively massively predisposes young people to developing disordered eating and over time disordered eating can develop into an eating disorder so i would be looking at adolescents i would be looking at certain groups of people i would be trying to pick up on things um you know and of course then when you this is the problem then you you think i've got a patient with an eating disorder and then you get stuck because then you're like huh what do I do now? Because unfortunately, then to refer them into services, depending on where you are, can be really difficult. I don't know how many people have experienced this, but are being told that there's just not serious enough or severe enough or, or thin enough. Ultimately, their BMI is not low enough to qualify for treatment. So what that means is that GPs are going to have to do a lot of them, not just GPs, but the GP, the general practice, the primary care team are going to have to do a lot of the sort of managing of people with eating disorders that are quote unquote, not severe enough to warrant a secondary care referral. So that involves a lot of training, doesn't it? Like there should be an eating disorder specialist in every practice. There should be an eating disorders nurse in every practice. There should be clinics where, you know, you specifically sort of have that, you know, and, and the environment needs to be a safe environment. And there's so many things we have to think about. Like, for example, all those posters that we put up in our waiting room, some of them are massively triggering. We have to take them down. You know, there's so many things that we need to do, but I think that it it starts with us being more proactive at looking for the symptoms and the presentation and um, and then in an ideal world, um, 
starting treatment straight away. And if it's not something that can be managed in secondary care, then we're going to have to upskill members of the primary care team, um, which we have done for many conditions. You know, diabetes nowadays is almost wholly looked after by the primary care team secondary care rarely get involved so we can do that with eating disorders too it just requires some training um so i think that's it and really as i said prevention is better than cure the, the most important thing we need to stop you know um eating disorders have spiked they've gone up massively we know that this is all driven by our obsession with weights and wellness culture quote unquote wellness culture so you know we need to put a stop to that as the government itself the house of commons itself said stop putting calories on menus stop weighing children stop talking about bmi they made it very clear what we should be doing the it's there in black and white just follow the damn document you know how hard is that why do you think it's not been listened to or followed oh i know exactly why it hasn't been like i can tell you in detail it's very simple the the, the a report came out in april in july first of july uh, the Conservative government introduced the, um, now I need to get the correct term, I think it's the Di- Digital Weight Management Service. I think it's called the Digital Weight Management Service. 1st of July, the government introduced a service in which basically anyone and everyone can go on a 12-week course to quote-unquote manage their weights. And when I say manage their weight, I mean develop disordered eating because you go into a room you weigh yourself you have to share your weight it's a bit like weight watchers you have to monitor all the food that you're eating you have to write it all down all this stuff that we know is bad for you um these the 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 organ the companies that do this 12-week scheme are private organizations they're not it's not the nhs that's Mm -hmm. providing the service it's a private organization Um, there's a lot of money changing hands here folks a lot of money gps are now financially incentivized across the country financially incentivized to refer you into the scheme whether or not you accept the referral doesn't matter they just have to refer you and they get money so um you know whenever you're looking for a reason the answer is almost always money it's almost always money and it was so obvious because i mean it was literally april and then july 1st this plan has been in motion for a really long time and it is and you know there is the um, all-party parliamentary group on um, I hate this word but on obesity, uh, and they um, for a very long time have been pushing this agenda. If you look at the minutes of their meeting now, it goes back for years. And again, the money that's sort of there, the contracts that are there, um, the drug companies that are paying for the you know and supporting these things, like it's always if you follow money it's not hard to find it's really not you just look a company up on company's house and you can see why um that's not being followed it will never be followed because there's no money in it like there is no money in removing calories there's no money in not weighing children weighing children and obsessing um, over people's weight increases the number of referrals into the digital weight management service which increases the amount of money that these private organizations can get and then beyond that we'll probably now that this new weight loss drug is available will increase um uh, novo nordisk who manufacture this weight loss drug will increase their profits exponentially because everyone's going to start going on them weighing people is financially beneficial to private organizations so i'm not like this isn't me with a conspiracy theory this is just blatantly obvious they have they're not even trying to cover it up it is just how it's done so um like i said just refuse your consent you just go no just no i refuse to let you in and and the way to do this is to not let them weigh you because if they can't weigh you 
then they can't do anything else. Now, of course, if you have an eating disorder and we're worried about your weight, like it doesn't apply here because weighing people is important in eating disorder treatment in certain circumstances. I'm not suggesting that you should do, that you should refuse to be weight in that, in that situation. But as a general population and people who don't have an eating disorder, the way to support the eating disorder community is to say that to be an ally is to say this is nonsense follow the house of commons report and stop putting profit over people and you can do that if you don't have an eating disorder and you want to be an ally that's how you do it you make a fuss and just say it doesn't matter what size you are just say no no full stop no because once there's no money in it they'll back off and find somewhere else so another way to make money you know ultimately and maybe then they put it into eating disorder treatment. Maybe they put it in the right place, maybe. Maybe. I mean. <laughs> Hopefully. All right then, Hannah. Sure. <laughs> I can have dreams, okay? Oh, very naive and idealistic. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very naive, but I am naive. So I'm, I'm just going to keep smiling and think that that's what, that's what will happen when we all go no. That's what's going to happen. Um, another question that we yeah. had. Okay. What should I expect with a BMI of more than 18.5 for my eating disorder treatment? I don't know enough about eating disorder treatment to know that. I do know that they took BMI out of the DSM-5, right? I mean, like, that. you know, it's changed the criteria. Um, I do know that there are many eating disorders that are not dependent on BMI. Um, I think potentially the answer to that question in the short term is nothing. You shouldn't expect any difference. Yeah, I think this is specifically for anorexia because if it's a BMI of more than eighteen point five, then it's atypical. So I think that's potentially right. What's okay, in which case, like, in which case, I don't know the answer to that question because it's just it's beyond my scope. It's beyond mm-hmm. my field of expertise. If you have a BMI of under of, of eighteen point five or under. I would be referring you to eating disorders services. But if you had a BMI of over 18.5, I'd still be referring you to eating disorder services. So I would expect you to have the care that they're supposed to provide you with. And I honestly, I don't know enough to be able to comment. No, and I think that the fact that you have said, you know, either way you're getting the treatment, hopefully if there are GPs listening, that's what we want to hear, that we want people to be getting in my personal opinion if you have an issue with food or your body and it's affecting your day-to-day life it I don't care what weight your weight is your BMI is it makes no difference whatsoever you deserve the treatment I think unfortunately we have got because of the weight stigma that is in society we do have a focus on the BMI and I think because services are inundated now you have to be at a low BMI in order to get support and and that is just unbelievably wrong but sadly it is but as I said it it is what it is the government does not invest enough into mental health services they never have they never will um again there's no money in it um, drug companies aren't making I mean there's no money in mental health drugs it's just it's not popular it's not exciting stuff like diabetes so um, I think that's I would go back to what I was saying before if you're a GP listening to this you know listen to these people listen to the lived experience of people with eating disorders the best thing you can do is listen to your patient 
and you know don't assume you know what's best for them ask them what they need and they should be able to tell you and and you know if they need help they need help it doesn't matter what their bmi is that should go without saying and if they can't access the services because the services are simply inundated we have a responsibility therefore to upskill ourselves and offer the support that they need because ultimately that's what we do as gps if secondary care is choosing not to look after our patients then we have to and it's not fair it's not fair because you know we can't cope either it's not like we're just sitting around twiddling our thumbs but there needs to be then you know the ccgs need to start investing money into eating disorders um awareness and into sort of training and into you know putting a specialist into every surgery or at least into the local area like there's plenty of things that we can be doing we've had to handle this for all sorts of things children and adolescent mental health we've had to handle it for all mental health disorders to quite honest we've had to deal with it and it's not fair and it shouldn't happen and there should be you know there should be way more money invested into these services there's no question about that but if our patients are telling us like we are suffering in silence and you're not even treating us and worse still, you probably gave me the eating disorder in the first place when you start harping on at me to lose weight and now I'm struggling and I need help. Like your job is to help them. I'm sorry, that's just our job. It's what we get paid for. We don't get paid that much, but it is what we get paid for. So we need to start talking locally. We're all in very small groups now, you know, and we can't, we have the power in our local area to say, all right, we need to take some money out of the pot and we need to upskill ourselves in this particular field. So do the do the analysis, do the do the do the research, do the audit, like start with an audit. It's not hard. We do it all the time. Do an audit, figure it out ask some questions, get some local people from your local practice to come in and talk to the GPs and tell them what they need and go from there. It's just, it's easy peasy stuff. Like this is, this is basic stuff that we can be doing. And, and I don't see why that's hard. Um, we have a full plate, but we also have a responsibility to our patients. And I think that like, we're constantly having to juggle that, but there's some very basic things that you can do that to make life easier for your set of patients, for your group of 20,000 or whatever it is Mm. do you think there's a difference between physical and mental health because I was just thinking in my head then when you were saying about you know you have a responsibility for care and stuff if I I would imagine maybe wrong if someone came to you with a physical illness and said I think I potentially have x you would then run the tests to see if they had x and then if they did you'd provide preventative care but it feels almost when it's a mental health illness that if someone presents and says, I think I have X, unless they fit very specific criteria, nothing happens. Correct. I think sort of historically, you know, we've always separated mental health from physical health, which is nonsense because mental health is brain health. That's all it is. It's brain health. It's neurochemistry. It's neurobiology, right? I mean, you stick a person who's got a history of depression into a PET scanner, their brain's going to look different. Same with an eating disorder. So I actually call it brain health. I don't like mental health. I think mental health sort of separates that kind of, you know, that old fashioned sort of thinking, I think, therefore I am, you know, whoever that philosopher was that was sort of separated the the physical from the mental nonsense it's just your brain the way your brain is firing or misfiring in certain conditions and so I think historically because we've always separated it we've always thought to ourselves it's not our job um we deal with the physical and we forget that the brain is very much part of the physical in fact the brain is probably the most important part of physical mental health very much determines your physical health so (laughs) there is a there is a there is a difference and you're absolutely right if someone came in and said, I have a cough, 
I would run x-rays if necessary. I would examine their chest. I would prescribe treatment. If that didn't work, I'd prescribe a different treatment. I'd prescribe a different treatment. There is no difference between that and an eating disorder. It's just that historically we were led to believe that physical health was more important than brain health. And we've never quite got out of that, which is a crying shame. And um, it's why I think ultimately we're struggling because actually this is putting a huge burden on GPs because you know people always say oh being fat is is putting a burden on on general practice in my experience it's mental health that's putting a burden on general practice because if your mental health or your brain health is poor your physical health will be poor it will it will result in poor physical health one way or another and so you're seeing all these patients and you're thinking to yourself you probably need to fix your physical health thing but I don't have the time to fix it. Even if I knew how to fix it, some of us do, some of us are good at our job. We don't have the time. We've got 10 minutes. You can't fix a mental health problem with 10 minutes. You can't refer them to mental health services because they're pretty useless. Not because they want to be useless, but because they don't have the, the resources either. So what do you do? You're really stuck between a rock and a hard place. And I think because eating disorders is even more, I would say, well, I don't know if it is more, but uh, you know, depression and anxiety, we, we've been dealing with this a long time and we're getting better at dealing with it in general practice but eating disorders is maybe slightly more niche. Mm-hmm. And I think it's probably because we don't see enough people with eating disorders, because most of the people who have an eating disorder, they don't present with an eating disorder and they don't look like they have an eating disorder. We think of it as like really extreme case where we've got two or three patients in our practice who have a BMI of like, you know, between 15 and 18 and who are having, um, you know, treatment at what's so-and-so center and, you know, have been sectioned under the mental health. Like that's the very extreme version. And we forget about all the other people. So, I think I wouldn't say it was niche, but I think unfortunately for most of my colleagues, it is niche because they've not listened to the hundreds of people who've spoken to them and written to them and emailed them every day saying, this is my experience. Um, so listening to lived experience would be a really good place to start, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. I think the best place to start, to be honest, because who, you know, obviously everybody's experience is individual, like we said, and, and everybody has a different experience, but you know, listen to what went right when somebody went to their doctor, what went wrong, like, you know, get things from both sides, because there will be things that doctors are doing fantastically, and there will be doing things that could be improved. But if we pile that all together, you know, you don't need much more than that to be able to provide. I don't think it's, I I personally don't think it's majorly difficult. I think you've, like you said, you've got the people out there telling you what they need I think that's one thing I've really noticed about a lot of um people especially kind of that have embarked on recovery already so much self-awareness that I could tell you exactly what I need I just need you to kind of help me yeah 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 Wow. Thank you so much. That was such an incredible conversation. So I think Eating Sod Awareness Week, we smashed it with that podcast. (laughs) Um, Absolutely amazing to talk to you. And thank you so much for sharing all your wisdom and insight. Thank you for having me, Hannah. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode. So be sure to subscribe. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support, they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support or talk to someone you trust.